Well, uh, if, if you're not familiar with that, I'm sorry, first of all. Uh, secondly, that is Ron Howard's series, Arrested Development. And you see, this, this is actually the pilot episode. And in this, you get a pretty good sense of where things are going. Uh, you see uh, Michael Bluth, uh, Jason Bateman's character, is kind of the centerpiece of the whole series. And, and you hear him say, right, like, the most important thing is family. That's kind of the, the core of it. Family is most important. But then as they, they talk, you, you kind of begin to get hints that, well, maybe that's true, but family is also really challenging and, and really messy. And the more you watch, the more you realize that's actually the point of the series. Not that family is most important, but that even when family is most important, they're also really, really messy. And I think we can resonate with that tension, um, that most of us would say our deepest, most intimate relationships are family, and also the relationships that cause us the most strain and stress and turmoil are family, that it is a, a both and, that we love our family and we don't know what to do with them. That's kind of family. It's challenging because we're, we're also in a, a culture that really elevates family above all, that, that family is the most important thing, even for, maybe even especially for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, that the Christian community over the last few decades particularly has take a particular, uh, taken a particular focus on the value of family as this most important place to give our attention. There are national organizations that are focused simply on the cultivation of family and family values, that engage politically to, to, enact, to try to get legislation that promote particular perspectives on what's good for families, that families are a really big deal. And we think families are important around here as well. As you can tell, we do a lot to try to help kids grow in their faith, whether it's from babies all the way up to teenagers. Uh, we try to create environments where families can learn what it looks like together to follow Jesus. Family's really important. But we also recognize that family's really messy. And to be honest, if we look at the life and teachings of Jesus, if we honestly just kind of take a, a surface reading of them, the messaging we get on family isn't exactly what we might think. In fact, some of what he says is downright shocking. It makes you want to kind of cock your head and ask, seriously? So we're in the second week of a series that we're doing that we're calling, seriously? And you have to say it that way or else it doesn't make sense. Um, but in this series, we're looking at some of the things that Jesus said that are challenging, that maybe run against the stereotypes, the caricatures that we make of Jesus. Because in our minds, we often imagine that Jesus is simply someone who taught us to love people, to be kind. And while that's true, it isn't really the whole story. Some of the things that Jesus said and did are shocking to us if we take them seriously. So this week, we're going to look at one particular uh, thing that Jesus said about families. And we're going to try to dig around and see what exactly was Jesus talking about 
And what did it mean for them, and what does it mean for us? What can we learn from this? So we're going to be looking at uh, Luke's gospel, Luke's biography of Jesus. So in the New Testament, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke's the third one. John is the fourth. Um, We're going to look at chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 14. If you don't, we're going to have the passage up here on the screen. You can see it, and you can follow along there. So Luke writes, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Anyone who doesn't hate their family, hate. Seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Especially because this isn't even like, it's not like graduate level following Jesus. This is kind of what he's casting out as the entrance, the, the entrance point, the, the, the front door, if you will. You have to hate your family. Now, I looked up this word hate because sometimes digging down and discovering the Greek or the Hebrew, or whatever the, the original language, can give some real insight into what that word means, right? And so I did a word study on the Greek word that Luke uses for hate. And I came to find out that it means hate. It doesn't really change. Like, it, it actually means what it says. It means hate. Now, what exactly, how, how we're to take that in context, right? Like, when, when we think hate, you might think, you know, on the verge of killing. One New Testament scholar, a guy named Craig Keener, suggests that hate could function as a hyperbolic, Semitic way of saying love less. In fact, you probably didn't notice, but usually the, I use the New Living Translation of the Bible. This, today I use the NIV, the New International Version. You don't care. But the reason I changed it is because the New Living Translation, it actually kind of puts that in there for you. They say, well, if you don't love them less, which may be true, but I think it takes away a little the oomph of what Jesus is saying. Because the word actually means hate. But anyway, back to Craig Keener, the New Testament scholar. He says, but this point, even if it does mean love less, it hardly diminishes the offensiveness of this saying in a society where honor of parents was considered virtually the highest obligation and one's family was usually one's greatest joy. So Keener's saying, even if if you grant that it doesn't mean hate, like you're on the verge of killing someone, even, even saying love less, even 
knocking it down a level is a significant countercultural move for Jesus. I mean, just think about it. Honoring your father and mother was a pretty big deal for these people. Uh, you, you may have heard of this thing. There's this list of rules we call the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's kind of square in the middle of the law that the Hebrews got. We've made lots of movies out of how they got it. Moses gets it from the mountain. Um, God writes it on a tablet with his finger. Like, these are kind of a big deal. Honor your father and mother is number five. Like, it's not even one of the ones that just scooted in at the end, right? Like, it's not like nine or ten. It's a solid five, right? It's right there in the middle. kind of hinges the whole thing together. In fact, if you read it, later New Testament writers would notice that this is the only command that actually has a promise attached to it. So I'll read you from Exodus 20, 12, and you'll see what I mean. In Exodus, we read commandment number five. They're not listed that way by number, but just so you know. Honor your father and mother, then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So honoring your parents was attached to this promise of a a life lived well, of a secure life, of a safe life, of a life lived long in the land. It wasn't just, hey, this is a good thing to do. It's, if you choose to do this, it's going to go well for you in the long run. So Jesus' command to hate family or love them less is in direct conflict with this command. Furthermore, socially, the family structure was critical because it was the only safety net that existed. There wasn't Social Security or Medicare or any of those kinds of things. Parents expected that as their children aged, they would care for their aging parents. The expectation, the honoring of your father and mother was largely about how are you caring for them and making sure that in the long run, they have all of their needs met because when you were young and helpless, they took care of you. And so now as they're aging and in need, you take care of them. That's how it works. And so not only is Jesus challenging Number five of the Ten Commandments, he's also inviting kids to be bad kids, to walk away from their aging parents and leave them alone. Or at least that's what it seems like. That's what it sounds like. That doesn't seem like a very, I don't know, nice thing to do, a very loving thing to do. So what is going on? Well, like we said last week, there are kind of two important things to do anytime you're reading scripture, but particularly when you get to a a passage where on face value, the text is problematic. When you're like, "Ah, I don't know, this this is, I'm not quite sure what to do with this. Two things to do. Number one, context is key. So you pull back and you look at the larger context to see how everything's fitting together. Is there a way to understand what's happening more broadly? And two, the character of Jesus. I think last week, uh, our number two was a racist, sexist Jesus doesn't make sense. I've kind of generalized that into looking at the character of Jesus. Same idea, but more general. So we're going to first of all look at the context. So if you zoom out on this passage, there's a couple of things that you'll notice just even from the, the part that we read. So immediately after, Jesus talks about um, this idea of hating your family, he uses the imagery of carrying your own cross. He says, 
you have to be willing to carry your cross if you're going to follow him. Now, did Jesus literally mean you need to go and find a cross somewhere and hike it up on your shoulder and start walking around as you're following me? As though it's some kind of like crossfit thing that they're doing as they're learning to follow Jesus. It, there were moans there. I, didn't, <laughs> I feel like I touched on a very personal thing there. You can, you can come at me later. We'll figure that out. Um, but no, no, that's not what he's saying at all. Nobody assumes. In fact, for these people, for those of us who are familiar with the Jesus story, the cross is synonymous with Jesus in many ways because we're looking back from this angle. But for them, the, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. Like, this, this is not a thing. And so for Jesus to say, take up your cross and follow me, this wasn't something that was symbolic of Jesus to them. This was some Roman torture tool. That, and what they did, the Romans, the way that they would use crucifixion, it was primarily against those who committed treason to demoralize them and to show anybody else who had just a little bit of thoughts of like, yeah, maybe we'll start a revolution, is that this is what's going to happen to you. And so they would, they would, when they captured the, the people who were... Uh, committing treason, they'd have them carry their cross publicly in front of everyone so they could see this, this dude's on his way to death. And so you watch them carry their cross to the point where they would then be crucified publicly, stripped naked, and hung until they died an agonizing, suffering death. So that everyone would go, whatever that dude did, I'm just going to avoid that. I'm going to do the other thing. right? Because no one wants to go that way. So that's their image of carrying your cross. So Jesus is like, hey, if you want to follow me, you need to carry your cross. So he's already using this, the cross as a symbol to represent this sense of like a willingness to be publicly humiliated, rejected, seen as a, a traitor even to the state if you're going to choose to follow me. It's a risky endeavor. But the cross is symbolic here. Much like in the song that we sang earlier with the, the worship team when they were talking about lifting up the cross as a picket sign, the, the invitation is not to literally go find a cross and like carry it around as a picket sign somewhere. It just doesn't make any sense, right? It's a symbol of something. So Jesus is using that symbolically. The other thing that we see as we pull out in the larger, the, the larger narrative here that Luke is weaving together is that then Jesus starts to tell parables. He starts to tell these meaning stories. One after another, he talks about the foolishness of someone who begins to build a tower but doesn't plan out how they're going to finish it. This is why I don't do house projects because that's how I do house projects. I'm like, oh, there's a thing. I'm going to start working on it. And I get halfway through it and I'm like, oh, I don't have any of the things that I need, right? So Jesus is talking to me in this parable. I'm convicted. But that, so he's like, this is foolish. No one's going to do this, right? And so he tells a parable. Next, he goes to a parable about a king who goes to war, or he's, he asks, would a king go to war without making sure that he's actually able to win the war? He's like, well, no, that's silly. Of course a king wouldn't do that. And then he talks about salt and, and saltiness. And, and if you don't, if, a salt, if salt isn't salty, well, what's the point? You can't use it. It's, it's not good for anything. And so Jesus immediately goes into telling these, these stories, these, these parables. And as you scan back even further, you recognize that Jesus has been doing this all along. That earlier in the chapter, and earlier in chapter 14, that we see Jesus, uh, people notice that Jesus is like having dinner. Um, oh, I'm sorry, before that, that that's after this. Um, Jesus sees that people are taking seats of honor earlier in the chapter. When they should be kind of like taking the, the lower seats, 
they're, they're arrogant. They think they should have the most important seats. And so Jesus starts telling parables about humility and seeing yourself rightly. And then later in chapter 15, immediately after this, Jesus is hanging out with tax, collect- tax collectors and people that uh, Luke refers to as notorious sinners. And the religious folk are looking and going, Jesus, what are you doing? What kind of people are you associating with? And then Jesus starts telling parables in response to that about God's heart for the lost. So all of that to say, when you kind of zoom back, you see a structure of what Jesus is doing. He encounters people and he begins to tell stories that engage them and pull them in and shock them, causing them to re-examine things that they assume. And so when you see it in that context, it fits perfectly. It's not that Jesus hates families. I mean, keep in mind, this is the guy who talked about loving your neighbor and loving your enemies. It's not that Jesus hates families, but it is that he wants to push against this idea that the central thing in life, the most important thing, is family. That that's what it all revolves around. He's pushing against that assumption to illustrate a point. So that's context. What about Jesus' character? Well, to be honest, Jesus' character on the issue of family is a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, So when Jesus begins his ministry, um, we hear him say some things that are pretty shocking when it comes to family. For example, in Mark chapter 3, this is another one of the biographies, um, we see that Jesus is out teaching and he's he's doing a lot of ministry stuff and his family is concerned about him. They think that he's going a little nuts. And so they come to bring him home and take care of him a little bit and set him on the right path. So they show up to get him, and he's in a house preaching. And someone comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, your mother and uh, brothers are outside. And Jesus responds in this way. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Ouch. So Jesus is kind of redefining family here. He's saying my primary familial allegiance is not to these folks. It's to those who are here, who get what I'm doing, who get what I'm about, who are with me. But as you follow through, you you also see Jesus doing some other things that seem to lessen the value of family. So, for example, when he calls the first disciples, he calls them to leave their families that they're working with in the boat. So uh, John and and James in particular are working the family business in the boat, and he calls them to follow him, and they leave their family business and follow Jesus. It's not super clear that Jesus really cares that much about those families. But at the same time, Jesus says some things that are actually really affirming of families. So, for example, in Mark chapter 1, after Jesus calls these people to leave their families and to follow him, the first place Jesus goes, the first location we hear about, is Peter's house. He goes to Peter's home where his mother-in-law is sick, and he heals his mother-in-law. That seems to be pretty cool for Peter and for his family. He's not called to just abandon them and forget the fact that your mother-in-law is sick. Jesus actually goes with him and heals his mother-in-law. 
Later in Mark chapter 7, Jesus confronts some religious leaders who think they're being super spiritual by using this tradition called korban. And what they do is, the money that they would otherwise use to support their family, they take and they say, this money is sacred, it's committed to God. And so it can't be used for their family. And Jesus is like, you're a hypocrite. Like, what are you talking about? You are completely, you're ignoring the command to honor your parents by doing this silly religious ritual. Jesus calls them out on not caring for their families because of religious rituals. And then what is for me the most compelling one is at the end of John's gospel where Jesus is hanging on the cross moments away from death. The culmination of all that he has been doing And he looks down and sees his mother and one of his followers, John. And he says, John, basically, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but basically he says, John, take care of her. And a few verses later, he dies. The last thing that Jesus does before his death on the cross is to make sure his mother is taken care of. So, it's not altogether clear that Jesus, like Jesus is an anti-family. He's not like family's horrible. He's not a cult leader, right? Like one of the things that we see regularly with cult leaders, they'll even invoke this saying of Jesus, it's like you have to hate your family, is this idea of cutting you off from all relationships, from all familial relationships, from all the people you know. We don't see Jesus doing that. He's not like, ah, forget all of those people. But he is pushing back strongly against the assumption that your primary loyalty is your family. He doesn't fit neatly in either of those categories. So what exactly is Jesus doing? I think that what he's doing is using really strong language to call these people who are saying they want to follow him to recalibrate their priorities so that they have a singular focus, and that focus is Jesus. It's important for Jesus that they not be committed in multiple places, that they have a fundamental singular commitment to him. Now, it it might be easy, or yeah, I think it's easy for us to look at that and be like, man, Jesus kind of has an ego, right? Like he needs your undivided attention, right? Like, that's problematic. When you get in relationships and people only want your attention and, and you know, they don't want you to focus on anybody else, isn't that kind of... Eh? But again, that's not exactly what Jesus is doing. I think actually weddings are a great illustration of some of what's happening here. We were just at a wedding on Friday night, and whenever I go to a wedding, I'm kind of struck by the symbolism of everything. Uh, mostly because when I'm at weddings, more often than not now, I'm participating in them, like I'm in somehow engaged in leading through the wedding, so I'm thinking about all of, all of the things. But just the simple act, right, of the, the father escorts the bride down the aisle, gives her away, goes and sits down. At the end, the, the couple is declared husband and wife. They walk out together arm in arm. Trailing behind them is their family. It's not that they are abandoning their family. It's that the primary focus has shifted from their parents and that family of origin to this family that they're now making. There's a primary commitment, a primary allegiance that's to each other. 
The secondary commitment, the, the secondary fam- familiar bonds, they're still there, they're still important, but they're not primary. And that order is really important. If that gets kind of confused or muddled, real problems can happen. I, I mean, anytime I talk to people who are having marital issues, I'll tell you, 75% of the time, one of those secondary relationships has tried to become primary. Right? It's, it's a, a family member outside of that who's trying to meddle a little bit. Right? Like trying to, to have some control or have some sway or speak into it in a way that's not helpful. And if the, the couple isn't able to say, well, I want to hear your wisdom, but this is my primary commitment, well, then it can get really hard really fast. Healthy marriages have to understand that the primary commitment is each other. Secondarily are these other commitments. And I think this is what Jesus is saying when it comes to faith. It's not that he's some egomaniac who just needs all of our attention all the time in order to feel good about himself. It's that we need to have a singular focus. We need to understand what direction we're going, the shape that our life is taking, the filter through which we understand everything else. And if we're trying to use multiple filters, if we're trying to to hear multiple voices, it can get really muddled and really, really confusing. We were not made to multitask. Now, I know that we all do it, so that sounds weird to say. Like, we all multitask. In fact, some of you are multitasking right now. We do it constantly. Technology has been a huge boon when it comes to us thinking about multitasking, right? We just assume we can do multiple things at the same time, which makes us more efficient. But it doesn't really. Lots and lots of research has been done on this to kind of figure out, like, how helpful is this pattern of multitasking? And again and again, the studies seem to show that it's counterproductive, that we actually accomplish less, and not only do we accomplish less, typically, but it's not particularly good for us. We weren't made to do multiple things at any given time. We were made to have a singular focus. I came across a, an article in, in Time magazine, which I know isn't a scientific journal, um, but it was a fascinating article done by two uh, neuro, uh, neurologists from the Cleveland Clinic, and they were talking about some of the studies that have been coming out on multitasking. And I wanted to pull out a part of it and just read to you uh, one of the things they observed. They write, For nearly all people in nearly all situations, multitasking is impossible. The neuroscience is clear. We are wired to be monotaskers. I don't know if that's actually a word, but it works. Monotaskers. Uh, One study found that just 2.5% of people are able to multitask effectively. And when the rest of us attempt to do two complex activities simultaneously, it is simply an illusion. Trying more than one thing at a time seriously compromises our ability to complete the tasks safely and well. Equally important, repeatedly switching back and forth from project to project like a hummingbird darting from flower to flower and then back to the original flower can impair our ability to function at our finest. So part of what Jesus is acknowledging here is that you were made to be singularly focused. You flourish, you experience life to the full when you have a clear sense of where you're going and who you're following. This is why Jesus says, unless you're willing to hate your family, unless you're willing to to have a clear, singular focus, 
that this is the direction that you're going, this isn't going to work. It's just not. Again, if, if you've ever taught a teenager to drive, you see this, ide- this dynamic at work. Uh, one of the things we discovered early on with teaching our son Josh to drive is that unless there's a really clear sense of who is in charge of the directions, we're going to have trouble if both my wife and I are in the car. Um, there have been a couple of times when that wasn't communicated clearly, and at one moment, you could see that I have a preference to go this direction, but Tracy would typically go this way. And at the same moment, we're shouting different directions to Josh, and he's trying to figure out, like, is my blinker on? Are there cars coming? How, am, I, am I doing all of this safely? And we're, he's getting different directions, and it's completely confusing, and frankly, it's not safe, not for us, not for others. And so we had to decide really early on, like, hey, okay, uh, one person gets to give directions. Whoever's in the, the passenger seat up front, that's the direction giver. The other person, you might have a great idea on what we ought to do. Shut up, right? Like, that's, that's the only way it's going to work. Because multiple messages at the same time, they aren't helpful. It's confusing. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to get wisdom from other places and other people at different times, but in that moment, what you need is a singular focus, a singular, uh, a key sense of where you're going and who you're following. And it's not only that that's good for you, but that's, that's what helps you become your best self so that you can be all that you need to be for others. I mean, think about the, the oxygen on the plane principle, right? It's kind of counterintuitive if you have a kid on the plane beside you and oxygen is leaving the tube, you might think like, oh, I should save the child. But the common wisdom is that's actually a bad idea because it's much better for you to take care of yourself first and then you can take care of the child. You need to do first things first. And this is... This is one of the things that as much as we do love our families and we want to be good members of those families, even the secondary families, right? We're not going to be able to do that well if we aren't singular focused. If we aren't allowing ourselves to be primarily shaped by Jesus, we're not going to be able to love them really well. we're not going to become fully who we were created to be. So in just a moment, we're going to jump in and and we're going to interact around this a little bit. I I want to hear you. We do Q&A at the end of every Sunday. uh, So would love to hear your questions, things you're thinking about. um, Even maybe disagreements you might have, ways you think that I got this wrong or um, concerns you have. Would love to interact with that a little bit. Uh, Carmen will be around with a microphone. So when it's that time, I'll let you know, and you can stick your hand up. She'll come to you with a mic. If you're uncomfortable speaking in front of people, there's also a number on the back of the bulletin that you can text, and we'll try to get to those questions as well. So before we move into Q&A, though, just a a thought, a a reflection, I mean, a question that I'd like to invite you to reflect on as you move into the week. Are you singular-focused, or are you multitasking? How is it that you are engaging with the world? Again, Jesus' invitation is for us to have a singular focus on him. And if we do so, then we become the kind of people who can do these secondary relationships, these secondary focuses. They're not unimportant. 
family, those kinds of relationships, all of the other things in life that draw our attention, those things are all important. They're just not primary. Jesus isn't saying, your family is not important. These things that exist outside of relationship with him are unimportant. No, they're just not primary. It's very different. And so the invitation is to have a singular focus on what's primary. And I think especially when it comes to family, this can be, while it's really challenging, it can also be really freeing. Because there, there is a tyranny to living a life, uh, speaking as a parent, when you have children, and feeling like you have to always be focused on everything that children want and need. Like, socially, that's kind of a given. Same is true even if you don't have kids, but, but you're married and maybe you have a spouse. Or, or if you're not married and you're in your, your, your family of origin with your parents, there's a way in which the narrative can be, you've just got to be totally honed in on them and whatever they want, whatever they need. And that can become a tyranny. That's actually, that just sucks the life out of you and makes you a worse parent, spouse, child, sibling than you would be otherwise. Because, I mean, let's face it, especially if we're talking about kids, they don't know what they want or need. And if your life is fundamentally oriented around everything that they need, then you're going to end up moving in directions that maybe five, ten years later you're going to look back and be like, ah, I wish I would have got my head above water a little bit and thought about that because I probably would have done things differently. Now, you're always going to do that. We'll do that anyway. But if we're able to pull back and realize that there's something, something bigger than just my family that I'm oriented around, it can free us from the tyranny of simply living only for our family. And it can also help us to do it better, more fully, because we're becoming who we need to be, even as we're learning to live in those roles well. Okay, so let's, let's talk about this a little bit. I want to hear your questions. Um, as Carmen's coming around, I guess one final thing I wanted to throw out. <clears throat> there will be tension around this always. I think one of the things that we see, <clears throat> excuse me, as the disciples followed Jesus throughout the scriptures <clears throat> is that they are regularly in and out of this singular focus thing. Sometimes they're like honed in and it's like cool. And other times they're completely distracted and doing other things. So, I don't think this is just a like, hey, once you get a singular focus, like it's just, just you're just moving forward, you know, full tilt. There, there's constantly this tension where you're wrestling with that. Um, but I, I do think the call is to regularly move towards how am I being, becoming more singularly focused. So anyway, uh, questions. Love to hear your things you're thinking, comments. Um, let's talk a little bit. One back there in the corner, Donna. Um, you touched on it at the end. Um, I, I was thinking, you know, like hate's a strong word, but um, okay. Um, when uh, God's 
when, in, like the Bible verse that says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Um, mm -hmm. If you put your eyes on him and keep your eyes focused on him, um, he will give you um, insight into how to love others more. Um, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Well, so I, and I don't know if this is what you're saying, but I, I mean, I think part of, so I don't think if you're singular focused on following Jesus, I don't think that means suddenly marriage gets easier, parenting gets easier. Um, in some ways, it might actually get more difficult because you may actually see, oh, I, the way that we're currently functioning isn't good, not good for me, not good for them. And so I need to start saying no to some of these things so we can move in this direction. So it may actually cause some conflict. So I don't mean to, to say that, well, if you're just focused on Jesus, all this stuff will get easier. Not at all. might get harder. Um, but I do think sometimes it has to in order for it to move towards health. So I don't know if that gets at what you were wondering. Yeah. Other questions, comments? I don't know how to take that when I stop here. Oh, wait, we got Asa here. I think something that you have to learn eventually is that you can love someone without liking them. You can want what's best for them and want their life to be better without actually enjoying spending time with them. This is very apparent in um, family relationships because those are always complicated and in some kind of turmoil most of the time. Yeah. And you can want what's best for the other person and care for them without liking them. Mm. Yeah, that's really good, and that's really true. And I think in family relationships, because they're so intimate... When there's conflict, sometimes the divisions can be much deeper and wider. Um, whereas, you know, if it was someone who was less intimately connected with you, um, it would be bad, but you'd figure it out because you don't have to see each other all the time. Whereas family, those things can cut a lot deeper. And sometimes our result actually is too extreme, right? Like we, we push back in a way that um, isn't loving or helpful um, because the hurt is deeper. And so I think that is where learning to follow Jesus bleeds out into, okay, if I'm actually taking Jesus seriously, what does it look like to love family that I don't like particularly or that it's really hard for me to be around? What does love look like? That's good. That's good. All right. Well, I appreciate the interaction. If there's any other questions or thoughts you have, um, I'll be in the back afterwards. Would love to engage with you around that stuff. Let me pray for us, and then we'll finish up with a final song. Well, Father, um, we, uh, this, I think this is really hard for us because family is such a sensitive topic. For some of us, 
we just can't imagine life without our families. Um, They are our deepest joy. And for others, our families, if they're in our lives at all, are sources of great pain and struggle. And then some of us find ourselves in the middle of that, where both are kind of true at the same time. Would you help us to learn what it means to be singularly focused? Would we learn how to focus our attention on you, Jesus, in a way that shapes us and changes us so that we can increasingly become who we were created to be? And then we can be better at loving and serving our family while not submitting to them and being ruled by them. Lead us and guide us as we do this so imperfectly together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close our service with a song together. Uh, If you're able to, please stand.